This might be one of the longer messages that I, that I teach. So I'm telling you ahead of time. Because if I were you, at like 40 minutes, I start going, where's this guy going? When's he stopping? This probably will be about an hour, just so you know. I hope that you guys can sit through an hour of teaching. I, I can guarantee you I'm not going to lose your attention because of the, the level of controversy. However, um, I do think that it's very, very important with a subject this important to talk with nuance and explanation and detail. And although we're not going to be exhaustive in everything we could talk about this issue, I think it will hit some of the major bullet points. Everybody's going to have questions after this message, and I'm happy to spend as much time with you as you need in order to discuss it. But I am going to stand on God's word in preaching it faithfully. But I really, really, really pray that I'm taking enough time to do it in a loving way. So you can pray for me as we pray together, and then we'll just start talking. Lord Jesus, we just pray that you would give us biblical wisdom, talk about biblical sexuality. And I pray, Lord, that tonight's message would be one of hope and encouragement, that people who feel just like they're trapped because they feel so much guilt or people who just feel like God is against them or hates them or whatever it is, like they have to do something in order to be uh, loved by you. I just pray, Lord, that this message would set everything straight. So we thank you, Lord. We praise you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. May it not be my words, but only your words. In Jesus' name, amen. When people look at the Bible and, and talk about sexuality, they find it hard to imagine how a book that's at least 2,000 years old, if you count the New Testament, has anything to say that could be relevant to us today, right? They think it's archaic. And so like, why would we follow any of the practices that a book written 2,000 years ago would tell us. And so this is where I used to say, like when people say like the, the Bible's out, old and outdated, I say it was kind of like old, like logic or like math. Like nobody says, oh, math is so old. You know, it was developed by philosophers, you know, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. Therefore, we shouldn't, well, not, it's more than 1,000 years ago. But you know what I'm saying? Therefore, we should not embrace math or logic. That's, that's dumb. But I think that the, bold in, the Bible, in a similar way, can have foundational truths from which we understand all of reality. Like, you couldn't live life without math, and you're discovering some of the laws of science, things that you build upon, you don't just toss out and reject. I think biblical truths are like that. And so, kind of starting off this talk on biblical sexuality, about 11 years ago, there was a young man named Tyler Clemente. Some of you may remember this. Went to Rutgers University and he had a roommate. And it turns out Tyler was gay and his roommate didn't know it until he was spying on him through a webcam. And when he found out that Tyler was actually trying to use the room privately and kind of kick his roommate out, the roommate spied on him through the webcam and saw them making out. Then he published it on Twitter and then was trying to kind of not just make fun of him, but kind of broadcast it to the internet. Well, from that one attempt to broadcast, you know, the fact that Tyler, his roommate, was gay, Tyler Comenti put on his Facebook page the following note. He said, I'm jumping off the GW bridge, sorry. And that's it. He jumped off the bridge and he committed suicide. And from that, his mother said this. 
I think some people think that sexual orientation can be changed or prayed over, but I know sexual orientation is not up for negotiation. I don't think my children need to be changed. I think that what needed changing is attitudes or myself or maybe some other people I know. How sad is it that someone is at the brink of despair or embarrassment or shame that they actually take their own life? That's why it's so important that we get this topic, you know, with, with sensitivity and also accuracy so that we can give people hope and not despair. And so it is, it is absolutely true that the Bible teaches something completely countercultural when it comes to sexuality. However, instead of living out the way of Jesus in a compelling and attractive manner, here's what typical church people do. Christians in America can often seem hypocritical, unloving, and downright just confusing, right? Hypocritical, number one, you think about an example of a Christian whose marriage is on the brink of divorce. They're always arguing, they're going to the courts, and at the same time, they're touting heterosexual marriage as being the only godly form of marriage. Like, how could you say that? Like, your marriage is a wreck, and you're still saying that people who are gay can't get married. Or what about people who are being unloving? So a Christian who doesn't make any attempts to understand the very real gender dysphoria taking place in a person who's identifying as trans. Or confusing. So Christian just giving super lame answers to questions like, why do you care what people do for love? Like, why are you so against people who just love each other? And then the, the, the response is something like, well, the Bible says so, and I don't know, I don't understand it. In fact, I took an intercultural communications class when I was in uh, Monmouth University. And in taking this class, our professor was showing a video of Wife Swap, and it happened to be the gay episode of Wife Swap, where, you know, the wife in a heterosexual marriage swapped with a gay couple, a gay guy couple. And so as, you know, they, they've swapped and they're having this communication together, the whole time, you know, the husband of the gay couple keeps on saying, I don't understand why you guys are so against us. We're the most loving people. And they really were. It seemed like they were really nice and really loving. And her response was always, I don't know why. I don't know why the Bible says this. It just does, okay? I just, I don't question God. Just God says it and that's what I do. And I looked at it and I said, this is so embarrassing. And I felt like this was such a bad caricature of Christianity. I have to talk to the professor. So I'm like, I'm not a superhuman. I have nerves just like anybody else. I'm like, I'm totally going to be hated, but I got to do it. So I went to the professor and I said, hey, I know that like what you're trying to do, but like, I feel like that was a very poor representation of Christianity. And so I went into this conversation and she said, thank you so much for talking to me. The very next day in class, before the class starts, she tells everybody, hey guys, I want to let you know that like after the class yesterday, Alan approached me to talk about the video that I showed. And he wanted to tell me that uh, the video I, sh I portrayed was unfair, a bad representation of Christianity. Because you know, some Christians accept gay marriage. And I go, hold on a second. I raised, that's literally what I did. I raised my hand, whoa, that's not what we talked about. And it was like such a guttural reaction that, that was like doubly embarrassing because now I'm out in the open. So I had a conversation about it. But my point is, that when Christians have a bad reaction or representation of what the Bible actually teaches, I think it actually turns people off to the teachings of Christianity altogether. 
So here's, here's what I'm going to say. If you struggle with same-sex attractions or have ever felt ostracized by church people for your perceived sexual identity, I'm sorry, and we're here to help. We're not here to kick you out. We're not here to, you know, single you out. We are here simply to give you a message of hope. Now, interestingly enough, Romans chapter one talks about homosexuality, right? But what people often don't see is Romans chapter two, verse one. You know, the, the verse numberings in the Bible were not inspired. The chapter breaks were added much, much later just for reference. So you would read this as just one long letter. And if you had read this as one, one long letter, you would see Romans chapter two, verse one, which says, therefore, after we talk about homosexuality, right? You are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For whenever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So whenever people get so hyped up about sexual identity or homosexuality or whatever it is, and they're just like, how could Christians teach this? How could Christians believe this? I usually respond by saying, you realize the Bible teaches lots of crazy things that you don't agree with. Like the Bible believes that you should actually wait till you're married to have sex. And most people I know that are not Christian don't agree with that. They think it's really impractical. How do you get to know someone unless you sleep with them? How do you, how do you marry someone if you've never lived with them? It makes no sense to them. And at the same time, I will never get a sign and start picketing outside of my friend's house in a heterosexual couple that's sleeping, you know, with his girlfriend. And I'm like, I am against this. I just want the world to know. I am totally against people sleeping with each other. Like, you probably already knew that. But the problem, and, and that's what it is, right? It's the same category of sin. It's sexual sin. And so he, here's why this conversation, I believe, can be so powerful. It gives people the true hope that they've been searching for. I'm going to quote you some statistics I found from a pro-LGBTQ website, okay? It's from suicidepreventionlifeline.org. It came up with some of this research. According to the U.S. Trans Transgender Survey, 40% of transgender adults have attempted suicide during their lifetime compared to less than 5% of the U.S. population as a whole. Transgender youth are far more likely than their non-transgender peers to ex experience depression, nearly four times the risk, according to one study by the Journal of Adolescent Health. The NSDUH found that 15% of LGBTQ adults had an alcohol or drug use disorder in the past year compared to 8% of heterosexual adults. So listen, we have to understand whenever we're talking to someone who is trans or gay, lesbian, queer, non-binary, any of those people, realize that first and foremost, they most likely are going through a lot of confusion, depression, anxiety. Perhaps they've turned to substances. So when we talk to them, we need to speak with compassion. And so here's what I want to say. For those who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, non-binary, if you are finding the path that you are following is not giving you the peace and satisfaction your soul aches for, then we want to testify that Jesus Christ can change your life. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that you have to believe. I'm forcing you to believe this. Jesus Christ doesn't even do that. I'm just inviting you that if what you have tried is not working, perhaps Jesus Christ actually does have the answer. That following him can give you the peace that you've always longed for. 
the satisfaction that you truly desire. So whenever I'm talking to someone about this subject, this is what I've done for about 11 years now. There are three things, three points that are really helpful to have this conversation. Number one, in order to have a conversation about biblical sexuality, number one, talk about morality. Number two, talk about identity. And number three, talk about freedom. Morality, identity, freedom. I've talked about it in this way for about 11 years. And it's been helpful for me, but it's a long way to get to where we're going. So please be patient with me. So let's talk about morality, number one. Now, the gotcha question that people ask of Christians is usually this. Is homosexuality a sin? And they want to kind of like trap you into that, right? Like when they're asking you, they don't want you to go, well, they want you to say yes or no, yes or no, which is a binary question, which is also interesting for people that believe in fluidity and non-binaries that they're forcing you to answer a binary question. But I think it's really important to invite them as much as possible. If you have a loving relationship, hopefully with someone who doesn't agree with you, inviting them into a conversation and not just reciting answers that you found in a textbook or you saw in a video. So we have to talk about morality before we get to the rest of the subject. Meaning like, what do you mean by sin? What makes anything right or wrong? Like, why do you even care if the Bible calls, you, calls it a sin? You don't believe in the Bible, right? So what is your standard of morality? Now we have to talk about the difference between moral ob objectivity and subjectivity. Meaning there's objective truth and subjective truth. Objective is mind independent, meaning that the universe will continue to exist whether or not I think about it. Gravity is a fact. It's scientific, regardless of whether I believe in gravity. If I jump up, I'm going to come down. Versus subjectivity, which is mind dependent. So the flavors of ice cream, I like to believe that half-baked Ben & Jerry's is the best flavor of Ben & Jerry's, objectively. But that's my preference. That's my opinion. There's nothing in the ice cream inherently that makes it objectively the best flavor, although I'd like to argue. Now, King, Her King Henry VIII, he was told by the Catholic Church that he could not divorce his wife. What did he do? He said, I'm going to start my own church. That's how the Anglican Church actually got started. King Henry VIII said, well, I'm just going to start my own church, and then I'll get a divorce out of that church. And so you would never want to hear things like that, right? Like you just kind of make up the rules as you go along as it fits your preferences. So we can still objectively say that King Henry VIII was wrong for doing that. But based on what? Well, in Christianity, here's what I would say. God himself is the ultimate paradigm of good. So that actions are good or bad, depending on whether or not they align with God's heart, his plans and decrees that flow from his character. So lying is wrong. Why? Because God is truth. Murder is wrong because God is life and the giver of life. And fornication or sex outside of marriage is wrong because God designed sex to be enjoyed within a marriage covenant between husband and wife. Now, without God, morality is just illusion. I mean, how would you even ground objective morality outside of God? So it would just be a psychological, basically, phenomena. And here's, here's a quote that you're going to see on the screen. An atheist, Richard Taylor, says this, 
The concept of moral obligation is unintelligible apart from the idea of God. Their words remain, but their meaning is gone. The modern age, more or less repudiating the idea of a divine lawgiver, has nevertheless tried to retain the ideas of moral right and wrong, without noticing that in casting God aside, they have abo also abolished the meaningfulness of right and wrong as well. Thus, even educated persons sometimes declare that such things as war or abortion or the violation of certain human rights are morally wrong, and they imagine they have said something true and meaningful. Educated people do not need to be told, however, that questions such as these have, pay attention, never been answered outside of religion. Interesting. Even an atheist admits it. So, but like, okay, just because he said it doesn't mean it's true. So why are questions of right and wrong unintelligible apart from God? Well, here's what I would say. How would you account for the difference in moral attitudes across the world? If you say like, well, there is objective right and wrong. Everybody knows that this is right and wrong. Well, that's based on your own personal experience. For instance, some people groups believe that it's okay to marry children. We could say, I'd like to say that is objectively wrong. Not just my experience growing up in America. And in fact, you couldn't make any moral judgments on different cultures. Otherwise, you're committing what's called colonialism, which is, you know, the anathema. That's like the worst thing you can commit to today, right? That's imposing your views on a different culture. So who are you to say that what culture is wrong for believing what they do? Some cultures believe that they can marry children. Some cultures, like the Nazis and their subculture, believed that the best thing to do for their country was to murder the Jews. Now, I'm a half-Jew. My grandfather, who was Jewish, was a prisoner of war in World War II. I can objectively say that is evil. Not just my preference. There's something wrong about that. And so like, okay, yes, we all intuitively know that these things are wrong, but based on what? You can't just cite your own intuition because different cultures have different intuitions. For instance, some racists believe that Asians are inferior as a race. And you can call them crazy or call them evil, like I probably would, but why? Why are they evil? Why are they wrong for believing that? Well, maybe you would say, well, because they hurt and they hate people, and that's wrong. Well, Antifa does that. They hurt, and they hate people. And then a lot of people look at what they're doing and say, well, it's justified because the people that they hurt and hate are worse. See how messed up this sounds? Why is that wrong? See, a worldview without God makes it logically inconsistent to make moral judgments on other people groups. Do you realize that is exactly how every war in every country starts? Our country's the good one, yours is the evil one. And because they're so evil, we're gonna take over that country. So, ask your friends this question. Without God, why believe anything is right or wrong? Okay, maybe the answer is, our evolutionary nature dictates what is right or what is wrong. Well, no, evolutionary nature would only teach you what works for survival. It's the survival of the fittest. What works best and what's most advantageous for your species. Which, by definition, means it's subject to change. Because what survives, what makes you survive, maybe having groups of people that are like you and groups of people that are diverse, but maybe not in 100 years. In fact, science can tell us what is, but it can't even tell us what we ought to do. 
Like science can tell us that if you skateboard, you're statistically probably gonna get injured. But it can't tell you that you should not skateboard, that it's wrong to skateboard. Well, maybe you think, well, you know, we all know deep down inside that these things are good or bad. And that's because that's what the majority of society agrees on. Well, we can envision a world in which World War II was unsuccessful. The Nazis took over the world. They're the majority. And we could still say that they are objectively incorrect, that they are morally evil. So all this to say, we can say something is right or wrong. I'll make it really easy. Based on the word of God, of the real creator, who himself is the ultimate good. Without goodness existing metaphysically apart from us, there would be no standard to actually measure right or wrong. This is what made C.S. Lewis, the famous author of Christian. He said, I was always mad at God and talking about good and evil, right? And then he says, but then I thought about like, wait a minute, how would I know if the line is crooked unless I saw a straight line? In other words, if there's no light, you would never be able to contrast the dark. It's like having no answer key to judge whether or not we've aced our exam. So how about you? On what authority besides your personal feelings could you base right and wrong? And if you just admit, yes, yeah, my personal feelings, then you really could never make moral judgments. Nobody should ever be accused of ever doing wrong because that's their personal feelings and preferences. So now I, I kind of got you in that sub point. Let's see what God's word says about sexuality and gender identity. So, you know, it's not me saying it. I'm just going to read the Bible. So we're going to talk about God's intention and then man's distortion. So first, God's intention when it comes to sexuality and gender identity. Um, I, I listened to this podcast a number of years ago in which there was a couple. They've only dated each other, non-Christian couple, only dated each other, and they were only each other's sexual partner. And they said, you know what? Before we get married, let's, let's go and sleep with as many people as possible for one month just to make sure that our relationship can withstand anything. And they said, yeah, because like if they get through that, imagine how much more powerful it would be to be married and know that they don't have to look anywhere else. Otherwise, they might get married and always look over the shoulder and be like, man, I wonder if it could have been better with somebody else. So a month goes by. They sleep with a ton of different people. And then afterwards, they said, I think I need another month. Then they sleep with a whole bunch of other people. And eventually, they broke up and they didn't get married. And so the podcaster's interviewing the guy. And the guy says to the podcaster, he says, you know, after this experiment, I think what I would do is I would have a seven-year marriage contract. Every seven years, if I wanted to renew my vows, I would. And if not, we would just part ways and, you know, it'd be an easy divorce. And so the podcaster says, you know, I always thought, it could just be me, but... I always thought that part of the power of marriage is knowing on good days or bad days, no matter what you go through, that person's always going to be in your corner and they're never going to leave you. That you never have to worry about after you sleep with this person, are they going to leave me after I've just shared the most vulnerable thing with them? And, and the guy goes, wow, I never thought about it that way. <laughs> you never thought about it? But literally, this is to me, when you don't have the wisdom that's in the Bible, people come up with all kinds of crazy ideas when it would have been much simpler to just listen to the word of God. In Christianity, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30 on the screen, it says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So in Christianity, marriage is sacred. Adam and Eve were put in the garden. Adam was alone in the garden, right? And God saw him, realized that this wasn't good. He could have made a gorilla to be his friend. He could have made a dog to be his friend. No offense to dogs, because I know there's like man's best friend is a dog. According to God, it's not. It was a woman. He didn't make another man. He made a woman specifically to be a complementary helper to the man so that they both, although different, uh, distinct, different roles, they both be equal in their value and worth and dignity and be able to help create the world that God wanted them to create. He could have made a world of just men or just women. And that's why naturally, you know, it's not always the case because of the fall. Some people aren't able to bear children, but the natural way to have children is men and women coming together. Now, animals don't have marital covenants that they're required to keep. You'll never see that in the animal kingdom. And like you see, like some dogs afraid of, you know, other dogs cheating on them. Instead, we as human beings choose to love in a covenant, which is a Christian idea. The marriage covenant itself is a Christian idea. So when people say, well, why are you opposed to us getting married? I might be opposed to a lot of people getting married. I don't think it's wise for a lot of people to get married. I also am opposed to Christians and non-Christians getting married. Ever think about that? The Bible is very strict on the way that it views marriage because it holds it to be sacred and holy. And whenever you see something that's valuable, you always put strict parameters around it so that it keeps that dignity. Now, that picture of that covenantal love is so important because Jesus Christ chose to love us unconditionally. It doesn't matter if you're gay or straight. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, black or white, Asian or whatever. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you because he loves you so that nothing would stand in the way between you and him. That anyone can have a relationship with God today. You don't have to wait. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to like work really hard, be a good person. You can enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ today. In the Bible, in the book of Hosea, there's a story of the prophet Hosea who's called to marry a prostitute. And Hosea says, that is the weirdest command in the Bible, and I don't think it will ever happen again in the history of humankind, right? God's like, I want you to marry a prostitute. And Hosea's like, what? Like, I thought I was supposed to stay away from those places. So he marries a prostitute, and she cheats on him multiple times. And as that's happening, Hosea's like, this is terrible. My heart's being broken. God, why are you letting this happen? And you know what God says? He says, now you understand my heart for my people Israel, though they keep on leaving me, though they keep on cheating on me with other gods and worshiping other gods, I still love them. So he instructs Hosea to buy his prostitute wife back, to pay money, not to sleep with his wife, but to purchase her back as his bride. So you can know we can be inspired that no, like if you're in a marriage covenant, the design is no matter what somebody does. I'm not talking about if your life is in danger, you're being abused. I know many women like that. But I'm talking about on the good days, bad days, you have the power to forgive. You have the power to love because that's how Christ Jesus loves you. So biblical marriage can be a place of safety. That's why 
that is the only place that the Bible prescribes sex to take place. That we would have the safety to be fully known and fully loved. You know, in the, in the Bible, it talks about Adam and Eve are in the garden and they're naked and unashamed, which is kind of like a weird verse. Like I read that to one of my friends who's now a believer. And he goes, why were they naked? I was like, that's a great question. But if you think about it, you probably have never thought about this before, but I was doing a study on, the, on this chapter and I realized something really interesting. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, right? And then they instantly felt bad. They started hiding. God starts walking in the garden. He's, he says, where are you, Adam? He says, here I am, right? Sees Adam and says, why were you hiding? Do you know what he says? He does not say, because I ate of the fruit. What does he say? Because I was naked. Why does he say that? Because nakedness coupled with sin means distrust. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Follow me for a second. As they ate of that fruit, suddenly they were known, they were able to know good and evil and they experienced the first sin. And so now when sin enters the picture, there's the ability to distrust because now you go, well, how do I know that I can trust this person? How do I know that they're not going to cheat on me, betray me, they're going to use me? That's exactly what happens when sin entered the world. So where there was that place of innocence so that they could be naked, now they have to cover up because they don't know if they might be exploited or kept safe. So now think about this. That's why God put the most vulnerable thing that you could do with another individual, sex, to be within the marriage covenant where you could be naked and unashamed because you're not afraid of them using you, using this to, to sex uh, some other people or use revenge porn. You're not afraid of any of that stuff because they are committed to you. Your body belongs to them. Their body belongs to you. It's a beautiful thing. And here's, here's the other thing. There are statistics to back this up. The Journal of Marriage and Family says this. People who report the lowest levels of sexual satisfaction are promiscuous singles with frequent sexual encounters. Because your bodies were designed chemically through the uh, um, hormone oxytocin, you were chemically designed so that when you would have sex with somebody else, it'd be a bonding agent when you're about to have a child. Even think evolutionary biology, which I'm not evolutionist, but if that's the way you go, think about it this way, that you are supposed to, as you are having sex with someone, in preparation for a baby, feel more connected to that woman, feel more connected to, to that man. That's what your bodies are designed to do. So that now, once you have sex with someone, everybody knows this, it's a lot harder to leave somebody after you have slept with them. It's 90 day difference because you've shared something with them. And now the fear creeps in. How do I know they're not gonna leave me? Your judgment is off. So biblical marriage becomes a place of sanctification and mission that you can have sex, but it's not just about sex, right? Marriage is all about looking at the world and being like Adam and Eve. God, what is your mission for our lives? What do you have for us to do as a couple that's complementary, so that we can go into this world and make disciples and change the world for good? And that's not to say that single people are any less. You know, I was single up until I was 29. A lot of you guys know that. But I would say, as the norm has been for married couples, we're gonna talk about marriage for a second. We can circle back to singles later. That marriage has always been the norm and probably the majority. And singles are, in a sense, married to Christ in their vows to the Lord. But we can talk about that later. So gender identity, I have to keep moving. Genesis chapter one, verse 27. God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the Bible clearly recognizes only two genders made in God's image with distinct but equal roles that when lived out, bring glory to God. It is a gift. God has given you, like God created you with gifts, abilities. Like some of you are great with music. Some of you are great with sports. Some of you are great with administration and being able to help with another, serve one another. Some of you are born teachers and some of you are born male and female. And God has given all of those things intentionally for a purpose. Now, that brings up the question about intersex people, which is a small majority, but it does exist, right? Now, intersex people, we can have a conversation if you actually have a person in your life that you know is intersex, but largely intersex, I think, because it's such a small minority, you don't use that to, uh, to completely throw out the rule of the majority. Like, if that's not your issue or problem, then you should live out your sex as it can be known. And same thing for intersex people. Live out your sex as it can be known before, before you in the Lord. But we can be more gracious with people who clearly are confused and they don't have those distinctions that are readily available. For those of us that do, then for us, it's up to us to receive the gift that God has given us and say, Lord, how do I live as a man for your glory? How do I live as a woman for your glory? Which does not mean, and this is the thing that ticks me off all the time. You look at cultural, like American males and American females and like, oh, well now I have to wear lumberjack shirts because I'm a man. I'm supposed to love barbecue and grow out a beard and I can't grow out a beard. Nowhere in the Bible do I see that. There's no lumberjack verse in the Bible. But we look at that and go, oh, that guy's really manly. Maybe. I do think, and this is a whole nother study, but the qualities of being a man are things like courage. Not to say that women are not courageous. Please don't hate me for this. Qualities of being a man is being a protector, looking at the vulnerable, the innocent, and being someone who stands up and rises to the call, takes action first. Because the propensity of man, to be honest, is to be lazy, sit back on your butt and wait for everybody else to do it. Women, they're, they usually take the initiative, right? They're usually go-getters, they're self-starters, which is amazing and beautiful. But listen, and I don't wanna, if you're a woman who feels like you'll be called to singleness, or you're a woman who doesn't feel called to have kids, more power to you. I believe that God's hand can be upon you and use you in a powerful way to be a CEO of a company, to do incredible things. But only women can have children. So we don't ever want to demean the fact that women can be amazing mothers and men can never be mothers. There's a natural bond. I'm watching, you know, as my wife has our newborn, Nova, who's going to be a year next month. There's something about that bond between child and mom that you don't want to quickly shun away or erase. Now, my, my wife, as a single mom, had three kids and she had to work. She didn't have a choice, right? She didn't have time to even pursue her own career at the time because she was taking care of the different kids and had different things going on. But insofar as you are able to have children, some of you aren't, but insofar as you are able to have children, don't diminish the fact that God may be calling you to just that, that uh, call of motherhood to love your children, to raise godly children. So that's not, all, that's not the only thing about women, but I have to keep moving. So that's God's intention. Let's now talk about man's distortion. And you'll see the passage on the screen. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Now, I think um, I've, I've tried to be as gracious as possible. I'm just going to read the Bible. So if you look at the language here and you're upset by the biblical language, I'm just reading the Bible, okay? So Romans chapter 1, 
Verse 24 says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to the debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of th evil things, disobedient parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also prove of those who practice them. Now that's the passage right before. You're inexcusable, old man, all you who judge, because you practice the same things, okay? Don't forget that context. But here we have to talk about this. Essentially homosexual sexual activity and heterosexual sexual activity outside of marriage are both distortions of God's intended design and they are sin. To ignore your given gender is to disregard the gift God has given and it is sin. It is to replace God and, and look at his word and say, I know what God has said, but I think I know better than the creator who made me. I think I can rule my life and live out my life with more joy than what God has prescribed for me. And that itself is replacing God and putting yourself on his throne, which is idolatry. And that is sin. So now let's talk about number two, identity. We talk about morality. That's what the Bible says. So yes, it's a sin. But now let's talk about the hope part. Number two, identity. How can you tell what is the defining subject of your life? By how you react when it's challenged. Some of you, even as I talked about it, immediately got defensive, immediately were upset, angry. And the Bible calls this idolatry. It's when you're worshiping something other than God and protecting it to the death. People hear what the Bible says and immediately get defensive and hostile, but it's the thing that gives you your greatest joy and losing it would be your greatest nightmare. Of course, I completely understand why people are defensive. Completely understand if people are upset because it's the most important thing in your life. The most important thing next to God in my life is my wife. If people make fun of my wife, I'll be really mad and really upset. Next thing I know that is my children. You make fun of my children, I'll kill you. Metaphorically, that's not a real threat. <laughs> Metaphorically. Erase that from the tape. So I understand when people have the most important thing challenged that they're going to be upset. This is why people are so adamant about adopting pronouns and having others accept and approve of their way of life as if it were just like any other way. You know, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And I think the modern person would say, I feel, therefore I am. In other words, the real you is hidden deep within yourself. And if you just get in touch with your deepest feelings, you will be your truest self. But I just want to point out, if we can just talk about the idol, just poke at it for a second, which I know is very difficult, but let's just poke at it for a second. Realize that this kind of thinking is not 
scientific. Everybody's huge on science right now, especially with COVID, right? Everyone wants to look at the science. This kind of thinking, Christian or non-Christian, is not scientific. Why? Because science deals with physical reality. But this is talking about transcendence. It's talking about metaphysical reality. So in other words, science can never tell a person born with male reproductive organs that they're actually a female or non-binary, etc. This is why Gilbert Ryle, the, the atheist philosopher, made fun of the concept of the soul. He called it the ghost in the machine. Anime lovers, it's like where ghost in the shell gets its name, but ghost in the machine. So what he said was, and I'll just use a modern analogy. Let's say that you're going to Rutgers University. You're, you're doing a tour. You're thinking about going to school there. As you're going on a tour to Rutgers University, you see maybe the college campus. You go to food trucks. You go to a gymnasium. You go to the student center. After leaving Rutgers University, I ask you, so like, how was Rutgers University? And your response was, you know, I had a lot, a lot of fun. I really enjoyed what I saw, but I never actually saw Rutgers University. This is, there's no place called Rutgers University. Like I looked all around for it, but I didn't find anything. You'd be doing what Gilbert Ryle calls a category mistake. That's where the term actually came from. Category mistake. You're asking the wrong question because Rutgers University just is the collection of all those different things. Even though there's no specific building that could be called Rutgers University. So Gilbert Ryle says, your soul is a collection of just your experiences, your body, your thoughts, but there's no actual part that persists over time that could be called a soul. Well, at least science can tell you where your soul is, right? There's no like part of you that you can say, well, that is the soul. It's something that's transcendent or met, uh, metaphysical. This is why it's so terrifying when you hear of people who go through brain damage, right? Those free accidents, someone gets shot in the head, they miraculously survive, but now they're angry all the time. They're the nicest person, but now they, their personality has completely changed. And you have changed. Literally every molecule in your body has replaced itself since you were born. You're physically not the same person. Your mind's not the same person. Your memories are different. Nothing about you is the same. So how do you know you're the same you? What if you're a completely different person? On signs, maybe. So there must be something beyond that, right? Your soul. And some people are willing to admit that you, yes, you have a soul. But if you concede a non-physical soul exists and a God who created the soul, you can't pay attention, cherry pick what to believe about the God who created you. At some point, you gotta say, yes, I believe in a metaphysical soul. I don't believe that we're just physical reality. But then you have to ask the question, well, what makes me, me? Is it really just my feelings? Because my feelings change all the time. The very first person I ever liked, I don't like that person anymore. I'm so glad I didn't marry that person, right? <laughs> feelings change all the time. How would you even know which feelings are the truest ones? Well, here's what the Bible says. And this is why it's so freeing. Because the Bible says who you are is more than how you feel. Your identity is made up more of your experiences, more than just how you feel. Who you are is vertical identity, more than who you are with. Your identity is not tied into another human being. Your self-worth is not tied into what somebody else thinks about you that's a human being. Who you are is more than your sexual orientation. That might be an important distinction of how you define yourself, but it's not the ultimate thing. In the same way that when I was born, I wasn't born in a vacuum. I, instead, I was born with a heritage, ethnicity, and culture you are born as God's image bearer. 
And those who believe on Jesus are adopted in his family as his child. Your identity is first and foremost God's child and therefore of infinite value. So who you are is more than who you're with, but you are defined by the value that God placed on you. And he gave his very life for you. And he created you for a purpose. The Bible says, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God had laid out your life and says, this is exactly what I want for so-and-so. I want them to follow me in this specific way because I know when they do, they're going to enter into joy and peace and have that satisfaction that only comes from a relationship that somebody walks with the, their Lord. But now we have to talk about the presence of same-sex desire. Because I think a lot of people, that's really their question. It's like, well, maybe it's not the sexual activity, but what about same-sex desire? As Jane Clementi, as we talked about um, Tyler's mom, said in the beginning, I think some people think sexual orientation can be changed or prayed over. I know sexual, sexual orientation is not up for negotiation, right? Here's what the argument basically is. It's something like, Desires for a sexual and romantic relationship with someone of the same gender is uncaused, inherent in homosexual persons, and therefore should not be criticized, instead only discovered, embraced, and accepted. So when you have these sexual desires, romantic desires, you shouldn't criticize them or look at them in a kind of way of just like, maybe I should take these, or maybe I shouldn't, maybe I should put them to the side. You should only embrace it and seek to understand it. But the issue is, all of us have conflicting desires, right? Me, I want to go to sleep, but I also, tonight at 1 a.m., want to eat a pint of ice cream. Conflicting desires. Yes, I love sleep, but I love ice cream. Which one is it? I don't know. You find yourself attracted to people even while in a relationship. If you're waiting to get married to stop being attracted to other people, I got news for you. You'll always be attracted to other people. That's a fact of life. Like, if you thought that's going to stop, you're crazy. Imagine, like, what would you, like, what would happen to your brain? Like, now I'm married and now I look at someone, I don't see you as attractive at all. I see you as, like, attractively neutral, right? I have a desire in me when I'm in traffic that sometimes I want to, like, brake check the person who keeps riding my bumper. That's a desire I have, but I also want to represent Jesus, especially when I'm driving the bridge van. I want to represent Jesus. It's a, conf a conflicting desire. But listen, our desires should not be embraced without a criteria of what is moral, helpful, or destructive. All, all of us need to take our desires, our feelings, our passions, and bring them to the Lord and say, like, well, Lord, what's helpful? I know what I want to do, but like, what should I do? What's the right thing to do? So in other words, what do you use as a filter to determine what desires you should embrace and which you should actually rule out? Our God, our good creator of everything, clearly tells us what is good and what is not in his book. And the fact of the matter is same-sex desire itself is a result of original sin. You may have not caused it. You have not asked for it. But the fact that you have it itself is a result of the first sin, the sin of Adam. But all of us are born with a propensity to sin in some way. All of us are born sinners. 
So it's not the case, I need to make this distinction because it's important. It's not the case that same-sex desire is morally neutral and only acting on it is sin. However, the fact that these desires are innate and feel completely natural leave many people to feel like they could never actually be Christians. Don't miss this. They feel like they could never be Christians unless they completely eradicate themselves of all homosexual desire. And that itself is, is really upsetting, right? You have this undue shame and guilt for the way that you found yourself. You didn't ask for these things. And you have this course set before you that feels so difficult. How will I ever follow Jesus when it feels like the road is so narrow? But all of us are born sinners. I mean, you don't know what it's like to be somebody else too. And I'm not saying that some lives aren't easier than others, but all of us have a predisposition to some particular sin over others. So as Christians, what we should not do is tell people a false hope that the minute you become a Christian, you'll never be angry ever again, right? Like suddenly you'll never be depressed. You'll never have a moment of anxiety ever again. No, you're gonna have that. But at the same time, even though you never communicate to a person with same-sex attractions that the minute you become a Christian, you're stopping attracted to the same sex, you do wanna give them hope that as you are struggling and as you are fighting through the power of the Holy Spirit, he does bring gradual victory. But without God's help, the Bible says whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. It's only God who sets you free. And whoever the Son of Man sets free is truly free indeed. So let's lastly talk about that concept of freedom. Here's another quote, put on the screen. John Sakeko, professor of psychology at San Francisco State University and editor of 25-volume Journal of Homosexuality, expressed his view in a 1989 USA Today article. Um, Notice I've tried as much as possible not to quote Christians. Just want to point that out. So he says this, the idea that people are born into one type of sexual behavior is entirely foolish. Homosexuality, he says, is a behavior, not a condition, and something that some people can and do change, just like they sometimes change other tastes and personality traits. So you may feel like, like you didn't have a choice as to what language you speak, right? You might feel like you were born speaking English, but the fact of the matter is it was learned, it took place over time. But sometimes you feel like, well, because I can't help it, Therefore, I should be excused from the guilt and um, you know, the sin nature of it. But if we were to find a stealing gene, if we did some, you know, put you under a microscope and found that you actually have a stealing gene that you can't help it, you just steal things, that wouldn't mean that we couldn't hold you accountable for stealing things, right? In the same way, you may feel like you don't have a choice, but what we're saying is you do have a choice. Human beings are free. We have choices. We don't have to follow our feelings. We don't have to give in to temptation when it arrives. I can say no to that pint of ice cream. No, tonight I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to be the responsible adult I should be. Now, at this point, a skeptic might ask, well, isn't it harmful or unnatural to deny your feelings or attractions? Aren't you just repressing those desires? How is that freedom? Well, freedom doesn't mean the absence of limitations. We've talked about this before. Freedom does not mean having no restraints. It's like eating. I'll say, I'm free because I eat everything all the time, right? You wanna be able to be free to choose, I'm gonna go vegan. 
I'm going to be a vegetarian. My wife's being vegan for the month, right? Very difficult for me. I mean, I feel like freedom, but for her, it's freedom. It's her choice. She's made the choice. Driving, right? It doesn't mean that I'm free, so I'm going to drive wherever I want. I'm going to drive however fast I want. No, you have the freedom to go within restraints. And that's actually how society can work. If there were no road signs, no road markers, no speed limits, there would just be chaos. So true freedom means having the right limitations. If a band's together, every band member in a five-piece band says, I'm going to play whatever key I want at whatever tempo I want. You're going to have terrible sounding music and you'll never make it and we're going to hate you. But if you have the right limitations, we're going to play in this key. We're going to play this song and it's going to sound like this. That's how you have beautiful music. Freedom is truly having the right limitations. So what is your moral criteria for how you live your life? Is it the moral criteria of the world, which is do whatever feels right? Because that changes all the time. That's why people jump from relationship to relationship and they're never happy because they're doing whatever feels right. How's that working for you? And what we're offering is the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ can truly set you free to love him, to be a changed person. That's why Patty Height, who got saved in our church, was in a gay relationship as a lesbian with her lesbian lover. They both got saved at the exact same time while living with each other, being sexually intimate with each other. They both read the Bible. They came to Calvary Chapel, Oldbridge. They got saved. Patty Heights' entire ministry, if you're struggling, her entire ministry is dedicated to helping people find freedom when they feel like in bondage to their sexual temptations. So one thing that Patty Heights says is, listen, I don't want people to get confused. The opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. It's holiness. Our goal is not to make you straight. Our goal is not to make people, quote unquote, normal like everybody else. It's precisely to make people different than everybody else. It's to make you like Christ, to make you holy. For some people, that might mean singleness, celibacy. For some people, that does mean marriage. But here's what Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 says. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So maybe you're asking at this point, what about marriage? What about the fact that I have these desires to be with a partner? That may be for you, but what I could say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, when I contemplate, maybe God would just have me single for the rest of my life. That's his desire for me. I can guarantee you, no matter what God chooses for you and whatever you choose in the path that God has for you, it's always worth it. The compromise of sin is never worth it. And whatever you have in this life, marriage or singleness, has nothing to be compared with the life that you receive in heaven. Marriage is never perfect. You'll have frustrations. You'll have despair. You'll have moments of anxiety but Christ can set you free so that doesn't have to define you. So final quote here, a word on struggle and sanctification. I need to read this quote out. It's by um, the Presbyterian Church in America. They had this whole assembly, an interim committee on human sexuality. They said this, um, for some people feel like they're struggling and they feel like they're losing the battle. 
at any given time in our life, some aspect of that corruption may be much prevailing, meaning that it may seem that we're not making progress, but we're stuck or even regressing. But this conflict is ultimately not symmetrical. It's not a tug of war that ends in a tie. Though corruption prevails for a time, the upper hand is given to growth and grace. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome and sow the saints growing grace. We are to be encouraged that the corruption prevailing phase is not the whole story. And by faith, the regenerate cling to the promise that the spirit's work in them cannot ultimately fail. You're not alone. The Holy Spirit is to be your helper. If you're ever saying, I can't do it. I have no idea how to live my life apart from the way that I've been living. The good news is the Holy Spirit's not going to leave you alone. He gives you the power both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And he's going to stand beside you. And you also have a church community that will love you every step of the way, even if you choose not to go the way of Christ. Every step of the way. We love unconditionally because that's the way that God loved us. But to people, and I've said this before, to people who say, well, I just don't know if I want to do this, but I still want to follow Jesus. I would say, how do you come to God and say, God, I need you to save me. I need you to change my life, but I don't actually want you, I don't actually want you to change anything significant in my life. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. I came to a place with the Lord where I said, prior to being married, prior to being with Jenna, I said, Lord, there is no area of my life that you don't have permission to change. If you want me to be single for the rest of my life, that's what I'm going to do. If you want me to move to a different country, that's what I want to do. If you want me to be a youth pastor, if you want me to be a gas attendant for the rest of my life, that's exactly what I'm going to do. That full surrender, you know what? That is the most exciting place to be. Because you know, wherever you're going is God's fault, not your fault. Right? You're just like, all right, I'm giving you my life. So whatever happens now is a result of your Holy Spirit's action and power and not my own. So in conclusion tonight, the LGBTQ community is hurting and feels like God's love is conditional. Are you willing, don't miss this, are you willing to step out of your comfort zone to embrace those who don't agree with your beliefs? Are you willing to be so loving, so embracing? Because I've been, I've been part of the gay community before. I've seen what they're like and they're way more loving than most church people, to be honest way more hospitable, way more caring, way more inviting, way more accepting. Can, be, can Christians be known for that kind of acceptance and love and care? All the while preaching the same message, Jesus Christ crucified, all of us are sinners. He's changed my life. I believe he can change yours. He can change anyone's. So practical tips to take away, morality, idols, freedom. Any conversation you ever have, the tiny outline in your mind might help you get out of the trap when people say, do you believe it's a sin? Say, well, well, let's just step back. What do you mean by sin? And why would it bother you what the Bible says? You don't even believe the Bible. Because I believe you're going to, because you think it's a sin, you're going to look down upon, you're going to ostracize, you're going to hate. I don't. What would make, I believe everybody's a sinner. Why would I hate you guys? I'm a sinner. I'm the worst. I know myself. I know my sin better than anybody else's sin. Why would I hate anybody else? 
But it's because we call it sin that we truly can show people there's a power to be freed of sin. That's why it's so important. Idols. We can identify and address, address the fact that the idol that people worship cannot actually satisfy them. And if we just poke at it, though it's the most important thing, if we're, they're willing and open, then we can show them that sexuality as an identity cannot ever truly fill the God-shaped hole inside of you. And lastly, freedom. We can correct the mistaken notion that God destines gay people, lesbian, non-binary to fight a battle that they can't actually win. It's not true. We've seen it in people that we know. I mean, it's one thing if I literally don't know any people who haven't come out of that lifestyle, but I do. And what they're telling me and what they're saying to you is there is joy in following Jesus wholeheartedly, fully surrendered to him. And that's the life that we invite you to tonight. Let's pray.